Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Kanturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. I'm bear with me for few episodes as this is my first time recording. Hope you guys enjoy. Thank you. Hello everybody. I have Dr. Cassandra Lechler with me. She is an author, professor, communication consultant and motivation speaker. She is an expert on communicating feelings and improving connections. Cassandra's mission is to educate individuals on how to have effective and healthy communications to enhance their relationships. She works to help others gain understanding of communi- of their communication practice to improve their relationships with friends and family members in the workspace and beyond. Welcome to our show Cassandra. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Please, please go ahead and explain your story. I know you are an established uh, TEDx speaker as well and uh, you are motivating a lot of people with your story so yeah i'm really honored to have you here please explain your story and uh, i'll stop you if i have a question if not yeah please go ahead okay thank you well i i wanted to come and and talk to everybody i wanted to tell you a little bit about what brought me to where i am today so i am a communication studies professor and i've been doing that for quite some time and i teach about relationships and feelings and one of the reasons why this is so important to me and one of the things i always say when people ask me about why i teach communication studies is because i feel like i am supposed to teach other people how to use their voices because i didn't know how to use my own and so what i mean by that is um when i was a little girl i was sexually abused by a family friend and it's something that went on for a period of years it was um not only the the sexual abuse the the physical nature of it but then the psychological manipulation that goes along often hand in hand with any type of abuse and assault you know the threats and things like that so i endured that throughout childhood and was very but was very scared i never told anyone i instead just tried to push it away and pretend it wouldn't matter so all throughout my life then what i did was i kind of developed coping mechanisms to be okay and just you know if if the my abuser said i'd never be good enough so i was going to prove him wrong and just achieve everything i could you know or if my abuser said that no one would ever love me then watch me be so happy and joyful to everyone that everyone will love me and so i didn't even realize you know because i started doing that at such a young age that over time instead of being those coping mechanisms to keep me safe they became kind of my personality and my persona like my my protective mechanism these walls i had up right. and so i, I what were you at that time i was 6 when it began and right. yeah in in the man was a he was in a position of power um, you know my dad worked for him for a while and he had more money than our family and so there's a lot of you know people it's easy now in retrospect to look back and be like oh, why didn't you tell it i you know i've went through that whole shaming myself of you know why didn't you say something or what how could this have happened and you see people that age and you know you go through all of that and and it's one of those things where that's what we ask abuse victims all the time but until you're in that situation you know why people stay or why you don't say anything it it's just really hard to understand the the level of psychological distress and the way that your brain works so hard to keep you safe and protect you and 
And that's really what I did my whole life. So, I mean, I went about life. People thought I was happy. I was successful. And I really was, you know, I, I was doing great on the surface and I was still even doing fairly well, but I always felt kind of this internal sense of panic, or I would get really, you know, triggered very easily, or I'd be doing great. And then all of a sudden I wouldn't be. And I could never figure it out. And it, it bothered me. I'd, I'd go to psychiatrists and counselors and I'd, I'd go through therapy for various things. And there was still just kind of this unsettled feeling, even with medication or what have you. And there were a variety of circumstances in my life that maybe should have caused me to kind of jolt out of that a bit. I, I have lupus. I was very sick for a long time. I went through a divorce, you know, some other things, but I still was just not really connecting all of the ways that I had pushed my abuse aside and created those coping mechanisms with that feeling of anxiety. I hadn't really considered that that was what the problem was. So then um, just a few years ago, just in 2018, my family was hit by a drunk driver and the accident itself wasn't, you know, we walked away with minor physical injuries, but the what, what happened to me in that moment, in that crash, was it sent me back to that place of panic that wasn't just that surface level that I could kind of contain, but it was an internal thing. I can only describe it as terror. I went back to that space. And in it's so eye-opening me, to me to think that that's what caused that to happen. And that's what I say in my TEDx talk is, is that was the moment, you know, that was the moment for me, even though in light of all of these other things that have happened in my life, that really isn't the most traumatic thing, right? And, and it's important that I say that because I think that that happens so frequently for people is like, you know, you might look at somebody and you think they're overreacting to a situation because it's different than how you would feel or how you would react. And you, you just, you never know what's led somebody to that point. You never know when, you know, with the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever saying you want to use there. And, and so that's why it, I think it's so important that we don't just, you know, judge somebody by one interaction or one encounter either, and just really try to understand their lived experiences. Um, so after that crash, I, I just, I couldn't handle like living in that space anymore. I decided I needed to really confront the abuse. And so I went back and started doing some trauma therapy. I started journaling. I couldn't get into a lot of the places for help like I wanted to. I didn't have the resources or they weren't available. So I actually did a lot of it just through as much as I could on my own. And I'm very fortunate with my background and some of my education that I had some tools and resources to you know, be able to facilitate that. But some of the best things that I did that helped me is I really took some space away. You know, I, I got rid of social media. I, I, you know, I was able to do that. I, it wasn't, my business wasn't dependent on, on it then. I kind of stopped hanging out with friends a little bit. I just really focused inward because for me, that's all I knew how to do. Anytime I would talk to anyone else, anytime I would see anyone else, I felt like I, I was so upset about something and they didn't know why, because even though I knew why, and I knew I had to work on it, I still wasn't telling people what had happened or, you know, what the connection was. So during that time then of going through that 
in really writing about it. I was just journaling as everything came up, you know, if a trigger happened or something happened to me, I would sit with it and I would try to understand where that feeling came from. And I would just write and write and write and write. So what ended up happening is after I kind of worked through some different things and kept writing is I was reading my journals back and I'm a researcher, I'm an academic. So as I'm reading my, re my journal, I just almost said, as I'm reading my research, as I was reading my journals, <laughs> I, I, I can't help but code them, you know? So I'm reading them and taking note of themes. And I just, it was eye-opening because it was page after page after page of like unlovable, unwanted, unworthy, unlovable, unwanted, unworthy. And over and I get emotional just seeing it because I could, I just saw it. It's like they jumped off the pages at me. And I was like, oh, oh, this is, this is what's going on here. And so I, I took those journals and I put them in kind of like chapter order, you know, just put them together, but, and decided that I, I couldn't possibly be the only person who felt these things. And that's how I wrote, I wrote a book and I turned it into a book, but the book was never planned. It was not something I intended to do. It was really just after I read them and like I say, put my little research hat on and analyzed myself that I saw, I saw those patterns. I saw them for what they were. I saw the ways that I, I not only sought external validation because I was trying to prove something, I saw how I didn't feel worthy. And so I'd keep chasing and chasing and chasing. And that's why accomplishments would feel empty. That's why it wouldn't, you know, it'd be so fleeting. You know, I saw how trying to get people to love me turned into people pleasing, turned into me not even knowing what I wanted or what I needed or knowing how to have my own opinion about things. And so it just, it really was a transformative experience for me to, to look, you know, at the ways that my trauma, I've lived with that my whole life. And I thought that I was doing such a good job of, you know, of, you know, just being okay. And I think that that's, again, another thing that's important for me to just really acknowledge is that we can all, we're, we all have something that makes us feel broken. We do, you know, everybody's got crisis or stress or trauma, whatever it looks like for them. And if we don't acknowledge those things, you know, at some point in some way, shape or form, they creep up again, you know, it's going to come up, it's going to represent, you know, come up in a relationship, come up at work, come up somewhere. And, and that's where I think it, it's really important that we all start to get a little more honest about what that looks like for us. Because otherwise we do, you know, we explode on our loved ones or we snap at a stranger or we, we carry out these things as personal attacks elsewhere out in the world because we, we are hurting and we don't know why or we're scared and we don't know why. And it's gotten to the point then where we're so good at pushing feelings away that people can't even identify that that's what they're feeling. You know, they, they, so many people I think are afraid and they don't, they would never even label themselves as afraid because then that represents weakness and no, I'm not scared. And so anyway, just going through all of this, you know, I say all that because that, that undercurrent of anxiety that I mentioned and that kind of feeling of fear and that just that feeling is gone. 
I just, my energy is completely changed. I've always been a really upbeat person. I've loved my job. I've been able to talk to people, but it's, it's different because I'm different. I, I have a piece inside of me that I truly did not think was possible for me. I thought it was something that like other people could have, <laughs> but that I wasn't going to get. So yeah, that's, that's my story. So when you are mentioning about the perceptions of people on you and how it actually like gets into us, so how big was that for you? Like, how do you actually take up the judgmental thoughts of others or like, what was your thought process beyond that? I, you know, I, I really hated disappointing people. I hated people being upset with me and I still, you know, nobody likes that feeling, but it was to the point where I would sacrifice my own needs. And, and that's in part because I didn't think I was worthy of having needs. I didn't have enough self self-love or self-worth. So I was so, and some of that, you know, is very common with abuse victims too. You don't have any sense of boundaries. Your boundaries are degraded. And so, so it, once your boundaries are violated like that, it almost feels like, why would I attempt to create more? Because you, you feel like people aren't going to, are going to take advantage of those or aren't going to listen. And, and so I really struggled with even the boundary setting. So the people pleasing or, you know, or trying to be there for others and everything, it was in part because, you know, I didn't think I've, I, I didn't have enough value of myself to protect my own energy and my own space. Have you ever actually explained about this to your parents and what was that process like? Did they accept that? You know, um, yeah, it was really hard. I didn't, I didn't talk to them until uh, I had written my book. I knew I was writing my book. I knew it was about to put it out and I went to visit them and I, I sat down with them in their living room and, you know, I just, I told them and, and it was, it was really difficult, you know, because it, they were wonderful. They were wonderful. Um, but you can imagine, I know, you, I know you're a parent and I'm a parent and you can just imagine that, that pain. And, and one thing, you know, they, they, they feel responsible for not keeping me safe, you know, as any parent would. And, and it's hard to, you know, especially because I've come so far through it and I've, I'm okay you know, then making sure that they get now a chance to be okay with it, because that's something for them that then they have to think through and work through and sit with and same with my brother and my sister and, and everything. And so I'm really honestly quite glad that I waited till the time when I told them, because then by the time I talked, I talked to them, I was, I was able to be more, you know, a comfort and to tell them it was okay because I felt stronger. So for me, that was necessary, um, you know, but one thing I think is really important too, is just, you know, people have to do it in the way that feels right to them and feels good to them and that they feel safe with too. When did you realize you wanted to start talking about this story so that it would make much sense for somebody to even come out of their traumas or like talk about their story? What triggered you to do that? It really wasn't until I read my journals. Like I say, I read them and I saw those themes and I had, I'm, I had no plans to write this book. I had no plans to ever talk about it. Um, and that's why it really happened really fast. Once I decided it was just this huge push to get it out before the TEDx talk. 
but really the only reason I did it is I felt, I felt called to, I felt like I read it. Yeah. I can't even say it without getting emotional. Um, I, it's my, I know I'm supposed to, I knew I was supposed to help more people. I knew that I, by allowing others to see it for what it was and by allowing others to see the ways that impacted me and really, cause my book is very raw. It's very vulnerable. Um, and it's, it's very messy, you know, it's kind of all over the place and that's on purpose because that's what healing looks like. That's what going through that looks like. And so I just, I was just really authentic or as authentic as I felt I, I could be about the whole process because I really just think that there are so many people for many, many reasons who feel a lot of the things I felt. And, and I, I feel that also now because people have contacted me from reading it and things like that. And so, yeah, it was not a plan. I still don't really completely know what I'm doing, but it's, does it matter because I know I'm supposed to do it. So I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> I mean, when you are at the point, like, yes, you have to do it, no matter what it is. That is really, really great to know. What you, you mentioned like your trauma is just not physical. It, it was also psychological abuse. I can't say like, what was it like? I, I don't want to ask what was it like or anything. But when you are reading your own journal, even talking about it right now, you're going emotional. So mm -hmm. what hurts most is that it happened to you or like, is that what you thought about yourself? Yeah, it's interesting because the emotion I feel now is like, it's power. It's not sadness. Like even the tears, I'm, I'm a very uh, emotional creature. I tear up very easily and I, it, it's power. It, it's that, you know, when I say, I see those things or when I did that, it's, it, it's that knowledge and that recognition that I overcame it. And, and that's a wonderful feeling. I'll take those tears any day. Um, but, but it's interesting sometimes, you know, there are spots where I'll read parts back to my, uh, in my book, or I'll see it and I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, there are still memories where, or things where it doesn't send me into a state of panic or a spiral, but there's still always like maybe a little twinge or something, or just a recognition, or even, you know, I'll see something randomly at a store or somewhere and I, it'll, it'll bring back a memory or something like that. And I think the biggest thing for me now is that I understand it. I understand where they come from and I can kind of place why, why I'm feeling those things. And that's because when I was doing so much of my, my healing work, I would sit with those triggers, you know, they'd come up and I'd try to understand, okay, what is this feeling? Where does it come from? What is, what's really happening within my body? You know, what am I really mad at or what am I really upset with? And, and so I just, I worked at that every day and sometimes, you know, over and over and over it. And I think that that's something that, that is also very important to acknowledge because it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. You know, if you have PTSD, CPTSD, like it, it doesn't go away. You learn different ways to manage it. You learn to understand it better. You learn to explain it better to the loved ones that you have but there are still times where I know I snap at my kids faster than I would normally, or where I will get anxious out of nowhere. But the difference there then also is I know it and I immediately can go back and say, all right, that was not you. This is what that was. 
And here's why it's important that I tell you, and I'm sorry, you know, and that's something that's important. And until you can have a certain level of awareness about your own issues and, and work through them, you can't give that to your relational partners. You can't give that to your loved ones. So then unfortunately what happens in family and relationships is you have loved ones and family members who think things are their fault or who are, you know, and so like now I'm slipping into research mode here, but, but you, do, you see that dynamic and how it's just so pervasive across families and across generations and those patterns. And so again, that's why, that's why I have to talk about this because we can't keep, we can't keep having generational trauma over and over. We can't keep, you know, people in this space because we have enough other things in the world and we have to fix what we can and we can fix this, you know, we can fix this. When you were about to talk about your story coming out and explaining about it, were you afraid of, uh, of it for the first few times at least? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I was so focused on helping like people I was like I'm gonna help these people out here that I like thought about these anonymous people that it wasn't until I my book was on Amazon that I was like oh what about all the people I see every day who now are gonna know all these things like when I go to the grocery store or whatever so I, I really hadn't thought about that um too deeply and it's probably better that I didn't <laughs> because <laughs> But, um, but, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, yep, this is, this is what I'm doing. And this is, you know, this is going to be out there. I did talk to my kids before um, I have teenagers. So I did speak to them about it and let them know, you know, Hey, I'm going to put this book out and there's personal information and everything like that. But it was just one of those things where I, I just, again, I felt so certain that I was supposed to do it, that that overrode any feeling of fear. And I think some of it too was fear was a big one for me that I worked through on that book. So it was kind of, I won't say I was fearless or reckless by any means, but it really was this sense of power. Like, no, this is what's happening. Since you spoke about your research too, what do you think why people take care of other people's judgmental so uh, close to themselves? Like, why do we care about somebody is going to judge us this way? Yeah, we don't want to talk about it or something like that. Mm -hmm. We tend to personalize everything. We personalize things that aren't even about us most of the time. You know, I mean, we really do. We walk around thinking that everybody is thinking about us as much as we're thinking about ourselves. <laughs> and so, um, and, and so we, we tend to just walk around with that slant waiting for something to be personal. And the other thing of it is too, is that so often, you know, especially in our culture and our society, it is, it is based on so much of approval. You know, even look at social media, every time you get a like, you're getting a little dopamine hit of joy, you know, like, yay. And so we crave that we're conditioned to want that now at a younger and younger age. And, and so we know that feels good, right? So if somebody gives us a judgment that is opposite of that, it, you know, it, it can cause us just to question that or, or crave that or want that. And, and it's interesting too, because people have it for different things, you know, for some people it's like achievement in like a physical sport area. For some people it's about their creativity or being smart or being attractive or being whatever, but most people have something <laughs> that, you know, is, is something that where it's hurtful to them if they don't feel seen or heard. And I think that that's what it is. It's like, we don't like the judgment of others because 
we feel it's counter to how we feel about ourselves. So we, we don't feel seen or valued. And then that's why people get defensive because you're like, no, that's not me at all. Or that's, you're not right. And again, that's where it's then hard to even have a rational conversation at that point, because you're, you're already upset or worried about something, you know. When you started reading, writing your journal and reading about it later on, were you able to accept all of you in the first place itself? Or like, is it a process that you have to work through to accept every piece of you? It was a process. I mean, it was definitely something where there were parts of it that I didn't understand or that I felt like I was working through and then they'd come back up again. So it was, it was really difficult to kind of accept some of some pieces more than others, especially, you know, when I look at things like I, I still made a lot of poor choices, you know, I can't just, I can say that, yes, there were all these things for the abuse, but then the actions that I did from them, those are mine, you know, or the things that the ways that I treated people or the, you know, poor choices I made drinking or whatever, I still did that in the aftermath of the abuse, you know, and so really getting honest with myself too about the ways that I had to change and the things, the, the ways I was doing things. And, and that's scary. And it's scary not only to confront what you did, but it's scary to confront why you did it. And that goes back to again, and, and how are you not going to do it again then going forward? Or how are you going to, you know? And so for me, it's really just that recognition of, of trying to do the best I can in each moment and do better the next one and really forgiving myself was the hardest that was the hardest piece of all of it and, and forgiving myself for not saying anything forgiving myself for not talking about it not dealing with you know all of it that shame and and gosh shame is so awful you know you look at all of the research on it and you look at you listen to people who talk about it and that's it's so pervasive you know that's something that we people have been shamed their whole lives and then they also shame themselves to a degree that is just it, it's it's so difficult for people to to even unpack the ways that they are keeping themselves down you know i heard about forgiveness a lot of times from a lot of people in different pr perspectives what do you call forgiveness to yourself or like forgiveness process in your life for me it was you know in acceptance, acceptance and acknowledge, you know, acceptance and acknowledgement and then letting go, like releasing it, you know, and that's, that's the thing. I think that's why also I, I don't get the triggers like I used to. I don't get the spirals like I used to, because I've really just released that, you know, that's, um, there's different sayings about how, you know, if you don't forgive another person, it's like, you're the one who just keeps getting injured and things like that. And, and that's really what it was is I, I don't want that toxic toxicness anymore. You know, I don't want to live with that, that pain and that anger and all of that, because that's not who I am inside. You know, I am, I am joyful and I am happy and I'm kind and I am caring. And so in order to really feel that and be that, I have to forgive myself. I have to forgive everybody. I have to forgive whatever so I can let those things go so I can be my authentic self. And that's something that it's hard. It takes work, you know, it, it takes work every day. I, and especially again, you know, yourself, like my go-to 
is to beat myself up, you know, and just even watching my own thought patterns. I was the person who, you know, if I couldn't find my keys in my head, I'd be like, oh, you're so stupid. Why, why don't you ever put your keys away? Where are they? Like, I'm constantly doing that, you know, so just even stuff like that, really checking myself in the ways that I was just, I wasn't very nice to myself, you know, and I, I constantly was in that thought pattern and, and just kind of breaking that and forgiving myself for the ways that I, that I treated myself too. So is that forgiving process is just for ourselves in that case, or like, is it for the other person who did that to you? You know, I think that that's such an individual thing for people. I will say that it was much different for me because by the time I went to really heal from things, my abuser was dead. So that's a different space, you know, and that's a completely different space for, for better and for worse, for some reason, you know, for some things. And, and so I think that it, it, that for people, you know, think about people who their abusers are, are their family members and they see them or they have to interact with them. And that's something where, I, that's why I do have a little bit of trouble with some of the things I do read on forgiveness because there's some literature that makes it sound like if you can't forgive, then you're not really healed. And that's really not fair to put on somebody. That's, that's really the, not fair. The exact reason I wanted to ask you that question. <laughs> If you are looking at that person who hurt you most, and if you say like, yeah, it doesn't hurt me anymore, so you're good to have right in front of me. So mm -hmm. I cannot connect with that level of forgiveness at all. Yeah. So that's the reason I wanted to ask you, like, yeah, what is that forgiveness to you? Mm -hmm. Even for me, my abusers were like dead. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I never really got a chance to even think through that, what will happen tomorrow if they're going to come right in front of me. I don't know. But yeah, so yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I just think it's, it's something where, you know, and that's, you, you can't dictate when somebody else is ready for that either. It's not your place. And, and that's what's hard is, is just really, you know, for other people, family members, friends or outside, you know, whoever, it can be hard for them when they see people, you know, move on with your life or get over it. Or, you know, hopefully people don't say things like that. Oh my goodness. But they do, you know, where they think that like, oh, haven't you worked through that? Or it's okay. Or because in part, in part, I, they're trying to make themselves okay with it too, you know? And so the quicker everybody gets over it or forgets about it or moves on, then we can just like forget about it, which is problematic for all the reasons I talked about. Right. And, and just, I think it, it can be really difficult, the forgiveness thing, especially in places where, you know, the abuser is known or there's mutual friends, because then you have to also in, entertain these people who will say, you know, try to defend it or try to say, you know, ne negotiate and navigate those spaces. And that's really difficult or people who work with people who've abused them or, or, you know, assaulted them or, you know, what harassed them. And I think that the best thing we can do when we're talking about forgiveness is just say, hey, you get to do this on your own time. You get to work through this, you know, like that can be the goal, but like you get to get to that goal as you're working toward it and in, in a way that's right for you. You can't force that for anyone. Definitely we can't, but yeah, as I've mentioned, for us to feel that okay kind of our move on in your words when you mentioned the move on is something like we aren't, I don't know how to put it, 
it's not something that we can say like that never happened or like, yeah, we forgot everything about it that still exists within ourselves itself. But the way that I think about moving on is um, even if those tra traumas are like, even if those memories come back and trigger us, it's not going to affect us the way it was affecting before. That's where your healing, your forgiveness comes in. And yes, you are able to think about it and say like, okay, it happened and I'm okay right now. So yeah, I'm moving on. It's not something to the other person saying like, okay, whatever you have done to me, I'm, I'm really good right now and I'm moving on. For me, forgiveness is not that. That's why, I, as you mentioned, like, yeah, even I can't connect with some of the forgiveness philosophies if I read about. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's hard. Cause like I say, it, it, because then if you know that you're supposed to forgive, but you don't feel like it, <laughs> then it just makes you feel bad again about yourself again. Right. Then you're just like, well, I wish I could forgive, but I can't. So then you're just feeling bad. And that's another shame cycle. <laughs> like, and that's where so many of these things lead to shame cycles. <laughs> and it's just, again, you know, healing looks different for people. And, and I don't get to decide what that looks like for somebody else and we can support them. That's why we have the literature. That's why we have, you know, research where we can give people coping mechanisms and tools and we can talk about what it looks like for different situations. But, you know, it, it's hard to like make it a prescription. And unfortunately that's what people want, um, you know, a lot of times because it's easier to follow a set of directions and to be like, this is, these are the five steps. And then I'm all completely healed and I never have to think about it again. And the reality of it is healing is hard. It hurts. It hurts. And it, it causes change and growth and it's messy. And no, I mean, I completely see why everybody wants a pill instead. <laughs> but, but it's one of those things where I think like if you talk to anyone who's done any level of working on that, like I have never heard one person say it wasn't worth it. You know, I've never, and I've never met a person who's done some of that healing or been able to then to work through those things who has said they regret it or they wish there would have been a, a pill because it changes your life on every other level too then. It's not just about the abuse anymore. It's not about that at all. It's about, I'm a better mom, I'm a better friend, I'm a better teacher. I'm just better because I'm happier because I'm myself and because I don't have any of that weight. Like you say, the triggers might come up, some other things come up, but they don't own me anymore. Like they were owning my very existence before. You working as that relationship person and doing a lot of research around and your own story, you're hearing about other people's stories. Is there any action items that you think of for it not to happen? We are acting afterwards. We are acting to the point like, yes, it happened already and we are trying to heal the people after effects of it. But is there something that you think we can try at least to make a difference or change people's mind not to even happen. The first thing is like obviously awareness with our stories. Every day thousands of people are talking about these stories and still the statistics or the numbers shows like yes they're like super high. Mm -hmm. So is there anything that you think that we can do with your research that you have done so far? I mean absolutely this is a preventable problem. You know when you look at look at all of the diseases, look at all of the things that we have in the world that we can't solve. This one is preventable, you know, and this is something we could stop. 
And the thing about it is, is I'm on an, the advocacy children's um, advocacy center board, and there are advocacy centers throughout many communities in the United States and worldwide. And and one of their missions is awareness, like you're saying. And and one of the the problems is is so often we don't have the talk soon enough. We don't we don't have the resources, and we don't give people the information to really talk about this. And some of when I say talk about this. What I mean is even just starting with children and normalize them talking about their body parts, normalize them being able to really label their parts, you know, for what they are. It's a penis, it's a vagina, it's what, you know, so they can be very clear and direct. Teaching kids to have ownership over their body. You know, think about even, I teach family communication and one of the examples I give is, you know, I ask my students, okay, how many of you were ever forced to sit on a family member's lap or give somebody a, a hug? And, you know, everybody raises their hand, you know, it's like, so then what, yeah, yeah, you know, what you do over and over, you don't know. And so you have to, instead, we have to, I know it's, everybody wants families to be loving and caring and sharing. I get it. I get it. But you got to stop and you got to think about, okay, we also have to teach our kids. Like, you know what, if you want to give that person a hug, you can give them a hug. But if you don't want to, that's okay too, because that's your body and you get to decide. If you don't want to sit on their lap, that's okay and really giving kids choices. And, but what happens then there in that dynamic is the parent often has to stand up to an older person too, or something like, right? I mean, so you can see how so many of these changes and the things that we can do, there's also a reason why people don't do them because then you have to have uncomfortable conversations. So what I say to that <laughs> is that an uncomfortable conversation is only uncomfortable because we don't have it. Okay, yes, once yes. you start having those conversations, they're not uncomfortable anymore. So we need to normalize the conversation. We need to be able to talk about child abuse or sexual abuse or sexual assault or abuse without people, you know, giving a funny look or turning side eye or hushing their voices or whatever it is, you know, and that's where, you know, it's not just the awareness of their survivor stories, but it's talking about, yeah, the prevention. And the other thing is it's, it's making it everybody's problem. Okay, this isn't girls protect yourselves. Okay, first of all, men and boys get assaulted too. That's something that we really need to talk about. But in addition to that, you know, instead of teaching, you know, um, men not to assault women or, you know, women to protect themselves, we have to teach men not to assault women or vice versa. Again, I, it's, I don't want to make it gendered one way or the other because it's across the board. Yes. So just really embedding that in it in, in, in a younger age in the family dynamic and talking about it and then reinforcing it at school. But it's 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 a difficult, it's a hard sell to get people to talk about it, you know? It is. And and we instead like to say use hushed tones or we talk about it or people the thing of it is is that if people knew how prevalent it was, like again, I'm on the advocacy center board and so I know the statistics and I'll say things to people and they just they're floored. They can't, they're right here, really, in our town? Yeah, right here in our town. You know, because again, you don't hear about it. So just even, you know, reporting it, talking about it, sharing it, and and again, really being being vocal about some of those things to kids and, and empowering them, so. Do you work with kids at all? I do when I get asked to, like um, through organizations or youth groups and things like that. Um, and I have a few clients, but I don't, but I mean, primarily when I teach it's college students. Um, I do some workshops mainly for more middle school age, but I actually really like to work with elementary school kids too, because they're so 
they'll tell you, they talk, they'll tell you stuff. And it's honestly really fun to get them to just talk about their feelings and to open it up about it and to like, you hear them be proud of who they are. And I think that that's so cool because if we can teach kids to talk about how to be proud of who they are and how to be, you know, empowered in their voices, then if something bad does happen to them, you know, they might feel more confident to say things, but then just also aside from the abuse stuff, you know, if you can instill and reinforce, you know, who you are and your identity and what you're proud of about yourself, and you just reinforce that over and over, that's amazing. By the time my college students get to me, all we're doing is we're undoing their patterns we're doing the, you know, and that's what they say. I, I asked my students last semester to give advice to their eighth grade self. And then I did a workshop for eighth graders and I used their advice too. And it was all stuff, you know, like don't let other people bully you. Just be yourself and be proud of yourself and be self-confident. It's all of the things that we tell kids. It's all of it. But really like by the time we're telling them that in middle school, you know, instead we need to show them how to do it. We need to show them what it looks like, you know, instead of telling a kid like, be proud of yourself. Okay, well, what does that mean? Okay, hey, so let's look at how could you be proud of yourself? Let's write down a list of things that you like about yourself. Okay, and just things that you can feel inside of yourself that you like. Okay, then you be proud of those things or whatever it is, or instead of telling a kid like, oh, just be happy. Okay, well, what does that mean? Okay, like really teaching them to identify what the feeling looks like for them so that they can, they can talk about that and they can identify it. So I know I'm going all over the place on tangents here about this. Obviously, I'm very passionate about it. <laughs> I want it, I want it because like, we are hearing so many stories, but we are not hearing a solution at all. We are hearing the problem all the time. So I would definitely love to hear the solution part of it too, because mm -hmm. you being in, the, in that industry, being on the board and also like doing a lot of research behind the scenes. Yes, you had the problem before and you know personally how that feels. So what is the solution that we are looking towards? But definitely this is a great conversation. So yes, please. Give yeah. us as much as information that you think it is relevant for this. Yes. I think that it, you know, so much of it is just the awareness and the acknowledgement and the recognition. And then also, you know, and this this is hard, but really to being willing to be open when people do talk. And this is what is very difficult, you know, if if somebody comes to you with a disclosure or they say something, you know, not everybody can handle that kind of information. You know, some people in fact, handle it very poorly because they it makes them uncomfortable or they're not equipped. And, and, and really, I think we also then, the reason we need awareness, the reason we need these conversations is, like I said in my TEDx talk, because we have to prepare people how to respond to these things too. You know, we have to teach people how to be able to hold space for others and to have that compassion to be able to, to listen. Or if you know you can't, to admit that and tell somebody, I'm so sorry, like, thank you for sharing this with me right now. And I want to help you get to the right space, but I can't, you know, I can't be in this position for you, but I'm going to help get you where you can or whatever it is. Right. Because what, what we see now is so often is like, people don't make direct disclosures, you know, they might not come right out and say it, but they'll beat around the bush or they'll hint at it, or they'll say like, what would happen if this, or have you heard about something like this? In, in, in it can take some direct questions to really get people to be clear and to be forthright or to be open or to really wanna share their stories. 
in that takes knowing how to respond that takes being knowing how to listen and that takes also an openness to recognize that what somebody else experiences might not match up with you but that doesn't mean they're wrong and that's a big one too right because especially when we're talking about like abuse or anything else you know maybe I had this experience, but maybe you, to you, my abuser is a great person. So then I'm telling you, and you're just like, I just could never see that. I can't believe that. Oh, I don't know. Well, that's your experience. But then instead, what you've done is you've not validated what I have felt. You have, you know, eroded the fact that this was my lived experience. So it's, and I say that because when people do that, they're not trying to be hateful and hurtful most of the time. It's all about training the ways that we respond and thinking about that. So I think that that's also a big portion of this is the awareness, it's the responsiveness, it's all of it. I also heard a couple of people, a couple of people saying like, when I talk about not my story, even just like generalizing, saying like, yeah, these things happen. I heard one person saying to me saying like, oh, these things happen to everybody. What's a big deal? Why are you making it as, I'm like, okay, so how are you serving you? Are you saying that it happened to you? And she was like, yes, it happened to me. So, so what's the big deal? Why are you talking even? made starting this awareness campaign or whatever i'm not stopping you good that you're doing it but again what's the point of doing it so for such kind of people what what do you answer no it it it's it's again that judgment right it's that we and and that's why i think it's again it's important where it it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if somebody was in the same exact experience as you and you were completely over it and maybe you think that oh gosh they can't get over it what's their problem you know we do we judge the way other people have healed you know we are judging the way people are working through trauma and crisis and stress and instead, I wish people could just remember what that feels like. And like, <laughs> you know, remember what that feels like when you're in that space, the last thing you need is anyone judging you for how you're getting through it, right? So I think that the thing is, 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 is again, acknowledgement of, yep, doesn't look anything like the way that you've done it, or, it, you know, our experiences might be completely different, but this is, this is what I'm feeling right now. And these are my experiences. And this is the truth I'm living. And I think that it can be hard to say those things, but I also think that's important, you know, and that I think is more powerful because I've done the whole thing then too, where I've tried to explain it or I've been like, you know, or I've gotten passive aggressive about it and it never has made me feel better. It doesn't make the other person change their stance. And so instead it, it's just, you know, this is my lived experience and this is what I'm experiencing experiencing because then you're standing up for yourself and saying to them that this is your experiencing experience but you're also reinforcing it excuse me reinforcing it to yourself that no this is my lived experience because that's the thing is that for victims over and over they do get questioned they do get to ask, you can be made to feel as though, you know, you're, you're being gaslit, like your feelings are not valid or like you're blowing things out of proportion or that you're going crazy or what have you. And so even just saying those words out loud, my experiences are valid or my feelings are real or whatever you have to do. I mean, that's important too, because it, it's difficult because even if it's not somebody in your life, you know, you can turn on a TV show, you can flip on a news station and you can see victim claiming, victim shaming, you can see it. 
So it's that continual reinforcement that we just have in our society too. Have you ever had the kind of experience like victim shaming or like any of those experiences? I I did not with um with my book or anything. Um, I had a lot of I I was very fortunate. Um, I had a lot of of positive support. However, um, you know, given the classes I teach and the content that I teach, this this comes up often in my classes, in in you know, in in some of my workshops, and it's it's very much very much prevalent. You know, we love to think that it's something that happens. You know, that we don't do anymore. But we absolutely do. You know, we shame people for the way they dress. We shame them if they were walking alone. We shame them for not, you know, not calling somebody before they left. We shame them for how much they consume, you know, for alcohol. It, you name it. You know, we we say things like the alleged victim, like we're putting doubt in people's minds. You know, we it, it's it's things like that. And I and it's the ways that we talk about it. It's the ways it's absolutely it's so prevalent. Mm -hmm. When you are taking the classes or like in the classes, as you mentioned, for upper grade classes or like college students, I'm, I'm saying. When you are mentioning that your story comes up there, were you anytime disrespected or like looked down for something happened to you in your past? No, I mean, it's, it's really been good. I mean, I'm very fortunate. My students are incredible. I mean, they are, I love them so much every semester. I'm very lucky. And I think that that's in part because of, you know, the types of classes I teach. I do, I teach about relationships and I teach gender. I teach, you know, family communication, interpersonal communication. So my whole goal in those classes, they're pretty small. Usually my classes are like 28 people each. And the whole goal for me is we're going to create a safe space. And, and so I do that. I, I am vulnerable in the classroom. I do share personal examples. I use the theories and the concepts from classes. I tell stories about my own life to get them to solidify it for themselves because I want them to do that. And I feel like I can't say, hey, personalize this material. Hey, make this about your own life unless I'm also willing to show them how I've done that. And the way I show them how I do that is how I messed up, you know, like a lot of times, you know, I'm a relationship professor. I teach about love and romance and I'm single, you know, what's that? Well, let me tell you about my divorce. Let me tell you about all the way, you know, and that's what I do because, you know, that's what this is. It's, it's messy. We can know things. I can know everything I'm supposed to do, but when you're in a relationship with somebody else or when you're communicating with somebody else, it's not just about you, right? It's about the dynamic. It's all your relational history. It's whatever happened to you that day. It's what else is going on in your mind. It's, you know, it's all of that. And so it, I think because I go into it like that with my classes and that's how I approach them, I've been really lucky with my students who they're, they're there for it. You know, they're, they're very welcoming and accepting of that. And then in turn, what I've noticed since I wrote my book and since I started being more open is I've noticed a, a shift in the ways that they're digging in, you know, like into their, they're applying it. They're like getting after it. And it's so cool. You know, I, and that's where, again, back that power comes back, you know, it's like, they're getting the power to see their own patterns. They're getting the power to, to change some of the things in their life. And I, I just, I love it. And yeah, I know you didn't ask that at all. I could go on and on about how much I love my students, but so I've been really, um, really fortunate. 
And I think that that's something that is hard because not everybody is going to have that experience, you know, from their family, like I did, or from other, you know, um, friends or from outpouring of, of other people. And so finding the safe spaces, that's why your podcast, that's why things like what you're doing are so very important because we need those safe spaces. We need the Facebook groups. We need, you know, people on Instagram, we need, you know, support groups, those kinds of things, because not everybody's going to have a positive experience at all. Unfortunately, you know, not everybody's going to be believed, uh, and, and they, they need, a resource. They need help. They need support. And uh, again, unfortunately, that's not going to be for everybody, a counselor. That's not going to be for everybody, you know, going to get the therapy that they probably shouldn't have and deserve because of financial resources or availability or whatever it is. Right. And so I, I, again, I applaud you for, for doing this and for, for opening up space because that's important. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for that. I shared about one kind of a person uh, or uh, their experience or the way they look at what we are doing. And the other, other side of it, uh, the other example that I had is like from another lady saying, uh, why are you even talking about your story coming out? Hey, please don't talk about your story. You don't have to, because people are going to judge you. They're going to shame you. And uh, is that the only reason that you think are like the story itself is resonating with them so that they are not able to come out or like what kind of a things that these kind of mindsets will have for them not to come out as well as for, for them to stop others to come out? I think that, you know, I hope that some of that's a time thing. I hope that some of that's a generational thing that we're getting more and more beyond that, you know, future generations aren't going to have kind of some of those beliefs because some of it's a family, you know, think about the ways that you're raised. Think about, you know, some people aren't taught to talk about emotions or, or anything, or if you, if something bad happens, it stays within the family and you don't acknowledge it outside, you keep things close to you know, your chest or what have you. So some of it can be, you know, we can look at people's upbringings, we can look at the ways that they've been conditioned or to talk about things, or we can even look at the ways where sometimes that's a coping mechanism, right? I mean, you pretend you tell yourself so much that it doesn't matter and that you're fine that then you're going to judge anybody else who can't do the same. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I, I'm always real suspect. I will be honest with you of anyone who says like, no, I'm completely good. I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you are. Let's talk about that. <laughs> so <laughs> why I had that question was like the person who suggested to me, like, why are you coming out and talking about it? Uh, I heard behind the scenes that she was a rape victim herself, but she never spoke about her story to anybody. But how I got it, I don't know how the other person came to know about her life or anything, but I came to know from a different person saying like, hey, she mentioned to you that not to tell you our story because she herself is this. So that protective nature is also stopping is what I felt. Well, and, and, you know, it's interesting because again, it, people even do that for different reasons. You know, sometimes it could be just like, you know, I didn't want to talk about it. I don't know why you need to, but I've also seen it where people don't think you should, because they think it's, you're going to, you're going to have backlash or you're going to have hardship. And they're like, just don't, don't open up. Don't, don't do it. You know, you should just, you should let this one go. 
you know, pretend, move forward, you know, or whatever we tell people, you know, just put that in the past. Okay. That's a different chapter. You know, think of all these sayings, right? And I think sometimes that is rooted for people in a fear that like, it's going to be harder if you, if you, if you open it up, right. It's going to be more difficult. It's going to, it's going to cause you more hardship or more pain or more, you know, trauma or what have you. So just don't do it. And that's, that's, again, that's a coping mechanism or a choice for some people too, is, is, you know, where, what's going to cause you more pain. And unfortunately, a lot of times when we choose, when we think, okay, we won't talk about it and I'm good and I'm fine. And maybe you are fine about that, but then there's other things that, like I said, there's other things. So you're convinced like, no, I'm good. I'm not over that, but then it's creeping up over here <laughs> in some other fashion. So it, it's really, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting if you really get a chance to talk to people and to kind of unpack some of these things and to look at, you know, their history and to look at their relationships, look at their family, look at all of these things. But that's such a luxury, you know, we don't get to just sit and have those conversations. We don't just to, in fact, it's rare. More often, it's just, you know, even like you finding out about her, her background and history and things like that, that even a lot of times you wouldn't get. So then you're just left you know, if you, you're just left wondering why this person is, is judging you and doesn't want you to share your story. Right. So that then itself is damaging. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot of factors, a lot of variables. And when you're mentioning about the resources, what kind of resources that we actually have right now available for us to prevent this? I'm not talking about after the fact. I'm, <laughs> sadly you know not nearly enough i mean there are it's gonna it's so dependent on different communities too you know there aren't nearly enough federal funds there aren't nearly enough grants there are there are programs out there but when you look at like the individual level a lot of advocacy centers or or places for abuse victims you know they're they're constantly trying to get after it applying for grants asking for donations things like that so the thing that i would say you know what resources are available if you are in a means in your community donate to your shelters, donate, um, you know, ask what they need. A lot of times, um, especially if they take kids, you know, they need diapers, they need formula, they need toys, they need stuff like that. Um, you know, or if, if there are other women's shelters, a lot of times they need even like professional clothing for people to go out on job interviews. Like there are a number of things, ways that you can help if you don't have money, because a lot of people don't have cash. Okay, that's fine, you can volunteer. Okay, that's another resource that is available a lot of times in the community if you have like advocacy centers or if you have places for abuse victims to go, they're running on volunteers, you know, so you, you know, we all want more resources, but we have to be willing to see where we can contribute to resources sometimes too. And, and sometimes that is, a, a, you know, a donation of goods or of time. Sometimes it is if you, you know, maybe you don't have either of those things, but maybe you have a business that has a large following on social media. So you can plug some of those services or you can ask your patrons to do it. You know, like you can be creative and that's, that's really what it is in terms of looking at resources. But then once you find some of them, it really is advertising them and letting them know, letting people know that they exist, you know, schools sending out email blasts about resources, having it pinned on a, you know, website somewhere, making it so it's not so hard to find. Okay. People can't be digging through nine pages of a website to find where they need to call when their kid's been abused or whatever it is, right? So making it just really easily and easily accessible for people. 
Um, and, and then also with that, another tangent <laughs> is then training the people who then, you know, so if you make a call or if you are somewhere, if you go file a report, training those people as well so that they can handle it and get it to the right people. Because honestly, you're not going to call the right people all the time. You're not going to get to the right place. So knowing, you know, that somebody, whoever is answering a call or an email or what have you, that they have been trained to get you to the right place. Yes. Because somebody in distress, somebody in crisis, I mean, I've been there before. You should have seen me after the crash. I was a mess. I made no sense. I completely was just having an emotional breakdown. And the the police officers at the scene were very, very good at, at walking me through some of that. And, and that could have went a completely different direction, you know? So just, again, making sure people have the training and the resources um, so that then or training so that then when people need those resources, they feel safe and comfortable and to use them. So these are all like the after effect resources that we are talking about. Is there any yeah. preventive resources that you think of? That's just the awareness and the education, you know? I mean, that, that I know that everybody wants there to be a different answer, but that's the answer, you know? Um, because, it is a preventable problem, but the only way you can prevent a problem from occurring is to talk about it and acknowledge that it's a problem and then to acknowledge it when it's happening, to stop it from happening, you know, to really discuss it. It's like anything else, you know, if you sweep it under the rug, it's not going to change. And, and that's what we do. That's what we're still doing, you know, and, and it's got to be something where I wish, I wish I had a better answer. I wish the answer were even like money, but like you could get all the money in the world, but then how are you going to prevent it? Okay. We're going to prevent it by having, you know, you can have an initiative of what, so it really is just, I think we're still at the ground level. We're not, we're still at the ground level of talking about it, of making sure that people know, hey, do you know what sexual abuse looks like? Do you know what grooming is? Do you know, you know, this, that? Do you know, even something I'll never forget, like taking um, when my son was little, he's 15 now. Mm. I took him to the doctor um, when he was, you know, like going into kindergarten and they do the screening. And they're like, you know, asking questions about, okay, you know, what would you do if a bad guy came into the school? And I'm over here, I'm gender professor. So I'm like, okay, yes. What would you do if a bad guy came to the school? Well, what would you do if a woman came into the school? And it's like, oh, nothing. It's like, okay, I'm not trying to teach you that we should teach kids to be suspicious of all people. But yet at the same time, it's like we even like the ways that we're talking to kids about who's safe and who's not safe, right? And who is okay and who's not okay. We even have to get better about that. Because what we see now is more and more, you know, where there are unfortunately sophisticated rings of trafficking. There are different ways that people are working together and there are women who abuse people, you know? So just even really that has to be part of the conversation because unfortunately right now we have, you have, we have generations of boys you know, who think that boys can't be assaulted or men can't be abused or men can't be raped. So then they don't speak out or they don't say anything. So every single thing I say goes back to the idea that we don't talk about and we don't have awareness of it or we have awareness of it, but then we're uncomfortable with it. So we don't keep saying it or we don't have the conversation more. About volunteering or like any help that somebody can do. For example, let's say like, yeah, you being into this industry for a long time and you know 
most of the details I can say may not be like every angle of it, but most of it with the researchers that you wanted. As a normal person like me, if I say like, yes, I wanted to help you. Uh, so please tell me like what I can uh, do or like how I can contribute to your cause. What would be your answer for such kind of people? Because I, I have heard a lot of people asking me that question. Now that you are doing this, is there anything that I can help? My work right now is like, yeah, the tech related work, I'm taking the stories, I'm actually projecting it, but I'm not on the ground like you or any other guest here that are actually working on the ground to provide actual care and preventions for all these things. So if somebody like me ask you like, yes, what kind of a help that we can provide or support that we can provide, what would be your suggestions to us? You know, it's, it's, there are so many cool things. So I, I, my friend Susie actually created an organization. It's called Room Redux. And what that organization does is they go into, um, they have the homes of people who have been abused, like children who've been sexually abused. They will go in and they'll redo their rooms. They go in and they like, you know, they'll decorate them new furniture, they'll change it up and everything so that that child can have a, a new bedroom because so often a bedroom is a source of where abuse happens. So I bring that up because that's that's something that was born out of Susie's idea that now she has um, different, those organizations are in many cities all over the world right now. And she just started that because she has a mission to help keep kids safe, you know? So whatever that looks like for you, one of the things, you know, it's, it's a big problem. It feels overwhelming. And with any time you get involved in any advocacy or activist work, one of the things is, is you can't jump in and bite off more than you can chew because you're going to get discouraged. You're going to get burnt out. And then you're not going to be able to help as many people anyway, because you're going to feel that. So start where you are, you know, start at, at your hometown, start where, you know, if you don't want to, again, if you don't have a lot of money to give, or if you can't contact this national organization about how you're going to help them, you know, are, are there schools that need resources? Are there um, other organizations, sometimes it's church groups, sometimes it's um, nonprofit organizations. You know, you can even do things like you could do a canned food drive for the shelter or things like that. You know, I bring that up. I know that those are common ideas, but I think that especially when we're looking at everything that's happened with COVID and all across like um, the world, you know, communities are hurting right now, just, just right there. And so really seeing what you can do in, in your own space in, or even, um, you know, sometimes volunteering can be tricky because the, you know, depending on background checks and people's availability and things like that too. So it can even be something as simple as, you know, like offering to put up flyers or posters, or, you know, um, I, I, in my class, my students do an advocacy project in my gender class. So they created infographics on, they went on Canva, you know, it's a free website. They went on and they created infographics about the problem and they're pretty. And so they put them on social media and I put them on my social media and then we shared those. And so even things like that, you know, getting the word out, not being afraid to post about it on your personal page. Okay. That's something. So I think that starting there, you know, or, or telling people, you know, or finding out the statistics for your community or for your area, and then sharing those with other people, or, Hey, did you know this? Those would be, I mean, those are all good places to start. I think. What is success to you? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm going to answer that question completely differently now than I probably would have even two years ago, because 
right now, success is peace. Like I, I, you cannot take this from me, you know, like you just can't, it is, it is my greatest accomplishment. It's my greatest achievement. It's brought me the most joy and it, it, it's successful because I feel like I worked, I worked the hardest for it too, of anything I've ever done. <laughs> so that's, that's my success is that, is that feeling. What kind of a goals do you have? Like, I mean, uh, what is the immediate goal that you have or like even the long-term uh, perspectives of it? Um, my, my goal is to continue to build, you know, build a platform for other people to learn more about themselves and to work through and to share their stories. I really think that it's something that we're only just beginning to do. We're only just beginning this space where people are going to start to, to open up and talk about things. And I'm really excited for that. So I just, um, I'm going to keep writing and doing my classes and building classes on my website and really just hopefully be able to be there in a supportive space for people. Um, I'm working on a class on compassionate communication. So I'm um, developing that for, for my students for next year. And that's also important to me because that goes back to just my whole mission of if, you know, I really believe that we can not only help other people sit with their pain, we can help them move through it. And I think that, you know, but we can't unless we have done it for ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, it's twofold for me, it's helping others, but you can't do that until we've start, started with ourselves and worked through, you know, what we need to, so that we can be more present for other people. So lots of big goals. I'm going to accomplish them someday. <laughs> <laughs> One step at a time. Yes, for sure. One step at a time. <laughs> Is there any message that you wanted to leave the audience with? Just keep going. I mean, that's, that's, um, I say though, I flipped to it by accident the other day, a line in my book where I say, I got through the worst of times by just believing that I could. And I read that sentence and I was like, yeah, I did. You know? <laughs> and, and I, and I, I, it was almost like empowering to reread it and remind myself of that. And sometimes I do have to remind myself of that because life is hard, you know, not even the, you know, the abuse or what have you, you know, we all have stress again and day-to-day -day situations. So just, you know, reminding yourself that you can do it and you can get through it and you're so much stronger than what you know. And that when you look at somebody and they look like they have it all together, they're struggling too. We, everybody is in their own way. So just keep going. Okay. Thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.